And the Bible has a very serious character challenge for you today. There's a list of Christian character traits, actually 27, by my count, 27 character traits in Romans 12, verse 9, through the rest of the chapter. And, I mean, it's hard to find another list like this in the New Testament, where there's this many, one after another, very serious, very challenging callings upon a Christian's life. But this is, I think, what being like Jesus really means. It really means these types of things. We won't get it get over all of it tonight. We're going to get as far as we can. We'll probably do it in two weeks instead of one. But what I encourage you is this. Uh, As we're doing this, don't do it just passively like it's educational. Rather, do this like it's training, like it's a challenge for you personally. And this is how I've been studying it, and it has genuinely affected my life. Uh, And it's been a huge blessing to me. I've just been rejoicing over the impact it's been having. But really evaluate yourself. Let your guard down. This is not for you to have to feel embarrassed in front of anybody else or anything like that. It's just about you saying, Jesus, I want to always be on the potter's wheel, being shaped, being changed, being molded by the potter. And so let your guard down. This is for Christ. Be open, evaluate yourself, and see how you can grow through this. Because some people will, will hear these things and they think of it as a test as we read through these character qualities, I either pass or fail. I have that, I don't have that. I have that, I don't have that. And so there's a lot of motive to try to convince yourself that you're, you're okay in all the areas. But instead of seeing it as a test, if you see it as a calling, then you're not asking yes or no, do I have it or not? You're asking, how well am I doing here? Can I grow in this area? Is the calling even higher than what I've achieved? And chances are, yes. I mean, you're not perfected, um, or maybe you are, in which case, can we trade places, please? And you could teach me your ways. I'd really appreciate that. Um, all right, so let's, let's begin here. Romans 12, verse 9, it says, <clears throat> let love be without hypocrisy. And the first one is, is just so needful for the church. The emphasis here isn't whether you love. It's, it's here assuming you're going to love as a Christian, but it says how to love, and it says without hypocrisy. I love that. Without hypocrisy. What is that? What is hypocrisy here? And I know that, the, at least when I grew up in America, right, my understanding of hypocrisy is you say one thing, you do another. You know, you say one thing, you do another. Someone says, hey, you shouldn't smoke, and they're smoking. And they go, well, that's a hypocrite. Well, there's an element of that that's kind of true. But really, if you get down to the meaning of the word and what Paul was saying and what the Holy Spirit was saying, it's not exactly that. Hypocrisy isn't so much say one thing, do another. Hypocrisy is faking it. In fact, this is why the word actor is connected to the word hypocrite here in the Greek. So that's the actor going through the motions, being fake or insincere. Um, why, why does he need to say this? Why does, does the Holy Spirit need to tell you as a Christian, hello, I'm a Christian. I've been saved. I put my faith in Jesus Christ. He's changed my life. And the Holy Spirit's like, okay, after all that, don't, don't be hypocritical. Don't fake love. Don't pretend the whole love thing. Make sure it stays genuine. I think because this could be me. And this is needful advice. I shouldn't think, oh, not me, not me, not me. I should always think, maybe me. You know, if the scripture is going to bother telling believers this, it's because we generally need to hear it. You know, it's an important thing for us. And you're not alone in this, but let's consider it. Um, I think Ananias and Sapphira are an example of this kind of hypocrisy. 
they came and they brought gifts to offer to the church and they bring it lay at the apostles feet supposedly they sold their house and gave this whole sum of money but they were being deceitful they were pretending to be more loving and generous than they really were and so god struck them dead and you might be like wow if god struck dead every hypocrite in the church you know church membership might decrease a little bit (laughs) um and that's true but these were the first hypocrites in the early church And so God's making an example the first time it happens. So we never forget this example. He does this recurringly through the Old Testament as well. You know, the first time people make a serious error after sort of a new thing starts, the hammer drops on that person. Like the guy gathering sticks after the the law of Moses was given. He was killed on the Sabbath, or for gathering sticks on the Sabbath. Um, They didn't always enforce that law afterwards. Not that they shouldn't, but they didn't. Um, And... That was like the extreme example. We get this with uh, Moses when he brings the Ten Commandments and they've already broken them. There was, they were slaughtered, those who had, had worshipped the golden calf. And so the extreme consequence of the first uh, lawbreakers, so to speak, after the new thing starts, this is to draw our attention. If God dealt with every lawbreaker this way, there wouldn't be very many of us left, but, but it's to get our attention. So the attention is this, hypocrisy will kill the church. Hypocrisy will kill the church. And here's the part that's sobering. My hypocrisy will kill my church. It will kill my own fellowship of believers. The falseness or fakeness that some people bring, maybe not even fully aware they're doing it because they're just trying to at least look like they're doing the right thing. You know, trying to put on airs. This can be really bad. Why would I be a hypocrite in love, though? What what would my motivation be for doing this, for pretending to love when I'm not really being loving? I think one is to fit in. To fit in. I'm here. I am in a Christian environment where the ideals are Jesus, you know, and I'm like trying to fit in in this group. So I might maybe sometimes pretend. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Praise the Lord. Uh huh. Like whereas my my responses are more like um, I'm reacting to the environment I'm in rather than sort of out of a genuineness that's in me. But, but also another reason why people would be hypocrites is because people are kind of dumb, right? And we're fooled by fakers all the time. We're fooled by fakers all the time. I mean, that's why we enjoy TV. None of these people are really what they're pretending to be. But we're pretty much fooled by it, so we get a kick out of it, right? I enjoy it, and I don't think it's wrong to watch a show or something like that. I think it's kind of funny, though, when you think about it. Every once in a while, you're watching a show, and you're like, none of these people are doctors, None of those sick people are actually sick. <laughs> like, like none of these surgeries are actually happening. You know? <laughs> Sometimes people are talking to imaginary figures that we fill in with CGI, you know, and, and occasionally it, it, it pays to look and go, it's all pretend. And we ought to make sure our church isn't like that. And that I'm not like this when I'm in fellowship. That if I'm praying for someone, I'm really honestly praying. If I'm there in worship, I'm not just raising my hands because this is just sort of an act to fit in. But rather, if nobody was here, Lord, I'd be lifting my hands to you. That there's just a genuineness. Let your love be genuine. Let it be without hypocrisy. Because while people are easily fooled by faking and by hypocrisy, they are easily fooled by this. Just watch some of the popular uh, preachers who the, the, the veneer is very thin. And it should seem to be fairly obvious to most people who would look upon them, but yet it fools the, the masses. Um, but God is not. God is not fooled by the hypocrisy of people. He sees right through it. When, when he chose David to be the, the new king of Israel, Samuel the prophet had gone to the family of David and, and he knew that God was going to anoint one of these sons of, uh, to be the man. And so it says um, after he sees all these good looking strapping young lads, he's like, surely this is the one. Surely this is the one. But God tells him, 
He's looking at the outward thing, but God says, 1 Samuel 16, 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God is constantly gazing upon our hearts. So think about this. Imagine if all of the hypocritical religious acting was completely obvious to everyone. If everyone always knew when anybody else was faking, and that's what it's like for God all the time. So let your love be without hypocrisy, because if you're living unto the Lord, there's no place for hypocrisy. Now, there is a wrong solution, I think, to um, to letting your love be without hypocrisy. And I've seen people fall into this, so I just want to mention it real quick. And that is accepting a weak sauce version of Christianity, where I'm like, well, at least I'm not a hypocrite. But you're really like, your tank is like 20% full and that's how you live your Christian life. But at least you're not a hypocrite. So you put your compromise on display and that is not the cure. The cure is not to display my compromise like that's normal Christianity. And make normal Christianity this really sort of compromised worldly version that's not very loving. But rather, let love be there without hypocrisy. That, that's the solution is to just be genuine, be loving, to be rather than to look to appear. I think often people prefer looking good to being good because looking good's a lot easier. And that can be that can be the solution. I remember one uh, lady I talked to, she told me that when she really had fun and really enjoyed herself was when she went bowling with her friends. And she'd go bowling with her friends, she could relax, put her hair down, just kind of enjoy the night and have a good time. And she's like, but when I'm in church, I feel so uncomfortable. I just wish I could feel the way I felt when I was bowling with my friends. And I and I like this like stuck in my head this this thing it just kind of repeated in my brain for like weeks I was thinking about this and what I I don't remember what I said to her at the time hopefully it was something gracious and helpful I hope but what I thought later was maybe you need to stop faking it in church <laughs> and the thing is you feel so uncomfortable because you come to church and it's all pretend pretend and so of course you're ang- have anxiety and anxiousness just being in the presence of other people here because you're not being you following Jesus of course, the difference with bowling versus church is when you're bowling, nobody expects you to follow Jesus. So maybe that's why you feel more comfortable, but maybe in church it's a little different. So there's, there's a, uh, another wrong solution would be to just avoid the environment that expects me to be like Jesus. Instead, just be real Christians, really in fellowship. That's the calling. Be rather than appear. I like what one commentary said. It says, uh, what God seeks in the believer is not so much a single worthy act, as it is a continuing quality of life. When I was younger, I used to think that, I don't know where I got this idea, but I used to think somewhere in my life, there was one epic moment that I was being prepared for. And that one epic moment would be the thing that I would do for the Lord. What I didn't realize is that every day is a moment you live unto the Lord, and this is what God's looking for. It's not one epic moment. It's a life of living unto Christ. So this is, let love be without hypocrisy. I think that the rest of these 27 character traits or keys to Christian character are really about love that isn't fake. And so in my opinion, Romans 12 here, it says, let love be without hypocrisy. And then it goes on, I think, giving us a big long list of what that looks like. Of what that looks like. And remember, our calling as Christians is to love who first? God first. Others next. Ourselves Last, <laughs> in that order. <coughs> so 
So in, later on in verse 9, the second, the second uh, character trait is abhor what is evil. This is not what you would immediately title love. Not in modern culture anyways. You certainly wouldn't. Abhor what is evil. Now, there are three popular compromises I want to mention as we talk about this concept of abhorring or hating evil. One popular compromise, really common nowadays, is embracing sin. That would be homosexuality or perverse humor or sex outside of marriage or you, you name it, just go down the list, you know, some gossip, you know, whatever the, the sin is. Um, being lazy, that's a sin as well, you know, just embracing whatever the sin is, that's one popular compromise. A second popular compromise is acknowledging that something is sin, but actually being embarrassed about it. And I think that you may have seen this before, I certainly have, where someone acknowledges like, yeah, the Bible says that homosexuality is a sin, you know, you know, but... But really, I feel kind of bad about that. So sorry. I mean, that's what the Bible says, you know. But but I don't I mean, you know, I understand where you're coming from. I'm more reasonable than God. I mean, that's like pretty much the way it comes across, the way some people teach about it and talk about it. And I find this to be offensive to God, I think. Um, I do not need to apologize for God. I don't need to feel awkward when I say that there's a biblical truth about morality and I can take a stand on it. Um, that misrepresents God to do that. So that's the second compromise. One is embracing sin. One is acknowledging something is sin, but being embarrassed about it. And three is turning grace into a license for sin, where I, I use grace as an excuse to continue in sin. Of course, that's a third compromise. But what should my attitude be? What's the, the uncompromised attitude towards sin? It's right here. Abhor what is evil. This is a great challenge for you as a Christian. Do you hate What's evil? This is way beyond simply saying it's bad. God wants me to have a gut reaction of hatefulness towards wickedness. That's just way beyond me going, yes, objectively, I see that it is wrong. But I have, you know, but here I am, unobjective. I'm, ob- I'm objective and I have no real personal opinion about the matter, but rather to say, no, it's wrong, like actually wrong, like evil, like that's bad, like ew. That's the real nature of sin. And it goes across every sin. To word, the word abhor is to hate utterly, to despise, to shrink away from. Another uh, translation, a Greek uh, lexicon says, to have a strong dislike for someone or something, implying repulsion and desire for avoidance. So that's my attitude towards evil things, to have a, a hate for it, rather than to go like, I know it's wrong, but but it's still kind of good. I kind of like, you know, that's, that's not the biblical attitude to have. So this is a Christian character thing. How does this relate to love? Because this is about loving God. And I want to share God's attitude towards sin. And to see God's attitude towards sin, I don't really need to look a lot further than the cross. I'm going to look upon the cross and I go, Jesus, did you die for things that were technically bad or things that were really wrong? To, to see the hatefulness of sin, I just need to see the blood of Jesus Christ his beatings and his beard being ripped out and him being nailed to a cross and him saying, if there's any other way. Let me say something that's, that's not popular at all <laughs> since I'm on a roll today. Um, think about this, this, this statement here. Hell, hell is not an overreaction from God. Consider this concept. Hell is not an overreaction from God. Yet many people think it is. If hell's not an overreaction, then maybe sin is actually way worse than most people admit. 
So maybe it's appropriate to really hate this stuff. Sin, I should hate it. Why? Well, it sends people to hell. It That's one consequence, yeah. But also it harms each other. That's another consequence. It also comes against the very nature and character of who God is. It also rebels against his authority and his specific commands to us. In the end, when it comes to the issue of, of hell, judgment, sin, and, and consequences of sin, we're always going to end up, I think, either demonizing man or demonizing God. Either I'm going to look at man and go, wow, man, you are really messed up. Mankind is really sinful and wicked. Or I'll look at God and be like, you know, you're kind of taking things too far there, God. You should be a little more reasonable. And then I think grace is something that's not even really grace. It's more just understanding. Like God just understands that I make mistakes instead of has incredible grace upon such wicked sinners. So abhorring sin The depth of sin, the wickedness of sin, that's the thing that makes the love of God so amazing. Because when I realize how wicked I've been, I mean, how utterly wicked I've been, I'm blown away by the amount of love and grace and kindness and mercy that God has given me, that I'm called his child, that that he loves me and cares about me, even, even though... So the question I'd have for you, maybe this is kind of news to you. Maybe, maybe, maybe even this is opening your eyes to say like, well, I don't treat sin like it's really bad. Sometimes I just treat it like it's that forbidden good thing that I like, you know, um, would be this is, do you think that you were saved by a little bit of grace or a lot of grace? <laughs> and if you were saved by a lot of grace, then it must be because sin's pretty bad. Good for us to abhor sin. So to apply this to my life, character trait number two Have I stopped abhorring sin? Have I become too tolerant? Not just in my preaching, but in my living. Have I become too tolerant of sin? And the things I accept into my life. Love does not mean accepting wickedness into any area of my life. That would be fake love, hypocritical love. Love means the opposite. Psalm 97.10, it says this beautiful psalm. It says, you who love the Lord hate evil. So this is nothing new. This teaching here, abhor what is evil. And then, then uh, there's number three, the third character trait. And it's like the flip side, the other side of the coin from hating evil. It's cling to what is good. So to cling to, that word is to join oneself to or to become part of something. The idea is even, it's even used in marriage when two become one, they would use that same word. So this is cling to what is good. I'm to, I'm to, I'm to like attach myself to the things that are good. Um, a good cause, a good ministry, a good attitude, a good action. I think all of those things apply to clinging to what is good. And I think it's interesting that we're told to cling to what is good, not just to love what is good. I hate what is evil with a repulsion withdrawing myself, but what's good, I like, I like in desperation, grab it and hold on to it and don't let go. Why? Because I think what is good slips away so easily from me. You know, we're, we're fish swimming upstream. And what would the tendency be for the fish swimming against the stream would be to start going with the stream. It's just going to like a natural kind of thing. And there is unfortunately in our sin nature, there's a natural tendency towards sin. I have seen many times believers who at a younger age in the Lord had a much stronger commitment to holiness in their lives. But as years went by and slowly compromise creeped in, those, not not my convictions, their convictions changed. And they started thinking things were more and more okay that previously they were not okay with. And I get a little concerned that that might happen in my own life as well. I think it's happened so easy, not clinging to what is good, because we get tired 
we get lazy, we get soft, and we get cravings. You just have things you want, sinful things I want, and I get tired of dying to it. And so I start letting, oh, just a little bit here, a little bit there. And before you know it, you're having a spoonful of Nutella every day. Isn't it interesting, though, we have to cling to what is good, like, with desperation? But we sometimes do the opposite. Like, you're praying about serving a ministry, and you need, like, ten confirmations from God before you'll commit to ministry. But you don't need any to commit to that bowling league. You You don't need any confirmations to commit to, like, watching six seasons of some TV show, yet it'll take the same amount of time out of your life. And isn't that interesting how it is? Like, with ministry, it's like I give myself all these roadblocks before committing to serve the Lord. But with other things, it's like, you know, it's wide open, man. It's all green lights. Cling to what is good. Titus 2.14 is a good reminder for us. It says, Who gave himself for us, Jesus gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So as a Christian, one of my character callings is to be active in good deeds, good works, not for salvation. No, no, I mean, Jesus purchased it, man. It's all paid for. But I should be zealous to serve the Lord actively in my life. Busy yourself about good things. If, if you lack confirmation, do it anyway. I mean, just go for serving the Lord. My philosophy is this. Like, here's, here's my schedule of time I have in my life. Is I say yes to everything that's for the Lord until that plate gets full. And now I have no more room. And now I start going, okay. Now I need to, you know, specialize. <laughs> I need to go, what am I really called to do? What am I really better at? Let me, let me take some things off and keep other things on, expand certain responsibilities based upon your calling and your giftings and all that. But I think it's like a no-brainer. If I have time, I say yes. Like that's just easy to do um, for the Lord because I want to cling to what is good. Now, if you do this, if you cling to what is good and you abhor what is evil, I guarantee you, you will be accused of one particular bad word. Is it okay if I say it out loud here just for the sake of education? Legalism. <laughs> That's the word. You will be accused. Sorry, it's the L word. You will be accused of legalism if you do this. If you truly abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. It doesn't mean you're dumping your convictions on others. We'll get to that in Romans 14. We will talk all about convictions. But you will be accused of this. And my thought is just be gracious and don't worry about it and just keep plowing the field that God's given you. Keep living the life the Lord's called you to live. Um, but here's some of the things you'll hear said. To keep us from abhorring what is evil and clinging to what is good. Here's a phrase. Have you heard this before? Too often, Christians are known for what they're against instead of what they're for. Raise your hand if you've heard that before. And I'll be honest, I'm not sure what that means. When I really think about it, that Christians are known for what they're against instead of what they're for. I'm not entirely sure what that means, but I'm fairly certain it's not biblical. So I like to challenge this phrase right now. I like to um, call it out to a duel to the death. <laughs> One of us will die tonight. <coughs> this idea that Christians should only be known for what they're for, not what they're against. My question is, is that what the, the apostles did? Is that what Jesus did? Is that what the prophets of the Old Testament did? And the answer is no, no, and no. Not even close. This is modern American tolerance entering into the preacher's mouth that he can then tell people to what? Stop abhorring evil. Because you don't want to be known for what you're against, just what you're for. Yeah, but if you're for something, you're against something else. It's just inevitable. I'm for paying the right amount of money when I go to Taco Bell. 
Does that mean you're against paying the wrong amount of money? Oh, no, I don't want to be known for what I'm against. What are you talking about? What is this? Like, why are we tap dancing around things? Like, let's just not play these games. And I think it's a slippery slope to compromise. And it compromises my love for God so that I could placate and appease, appease a wicked world. It doesn't extend your outreach. It just leavens the church. Because now the church can't take a stance against evil, which we ought to do. Especially amongst our own members. We really should. I must be both. I must do both. I must abhor evil and cling to good. I must stand against wickedness and for righteousness. And there is no just pick one side or the other. As a believer, I ought to do both. That's what scripture teaches. If nothing else, it'll keep me from my own tendency towards sin. So the next time you hear somebody say, too often Christians are known for what they're against instead of what they're for, just ask them to show you that in the Bible. And the ironic thing is, that's just another way of saying that they're against you being against things, which is totally self-refuting in and of itself anyway. So if you want to take it from the philosophical position, you can do that. All right, so let's look at character trait number four, numero cuatro, in my Spanish-ish. I try. Um, number Verse 10, it says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, with brotherly love. I think it's interesting that let love be without hypocrisy, and then it's like, hate evil, cling to good, and then it says, after that, it says, now be kindly affectionate to one another, because hating evil and clinging to good is how you love God, and being kindly affectionate is how you love people. So that's really, it's just love being played out in different spheres. So kindly affectionate. Now immediately, many people will have images of marital actions and physical romantic love, but that is a modern confusion that we have. We make love into a husband-wife issue instead of into a human-human issue, which is what it really is. But that's why it says be kindly affectionate with brotherly love. In fact, I'll bet you some of you could tell me the Greek for brotherly love without even knowing Greek. Philadelphia. It's actually Philadelphia, the city itself, uh, named after this Greek word. This is why it's called the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. Phileo and Adelphos, the, the two words for love and uh, brother. So in other words, don't be the family that doesn't treat each other like family. But brothers and sisters in Christ are actual eternal brothers and sisters. So I'm to have like a loving family type affection, familial affection for one another. And this is, I think, applied in our local fellowship amongst the believers that we know in our circle. The ones that you hang out with, the ones you see here Sunday nights, or the ones you, you, know, you encounter at your work or in your own family, who are believers in particular, have kind affection for them. Kind affection here is just this sense of like a tender heart. Like I have a soft heart to you. I'm not closed off. You're not, you're not on this like naughty list in my mind. Like I have a soft heart towards you as my brother or sister. Even if you're failing, even if you've blown it, my heart of compassion and love does not fail. I think that people who, who hop churches fail to follow this character trait as a Christian. I mean, how am I being kindly affectionate when I keep rejecting whole groups of believers? Now, it's one thing to say, I'm newly saved, I don't know what church to fellowship with, I'm trying some places out, you know, so I'm trying to figure out where to plant my feet. But if someone goes to a church for a year, leaves, goes to a church for a year, leaves, goes to a church for a year, leaves, and this repeats over and over again, I think there's a lack of love that, very possibly, a lack of love that you have for the body around you in Christ. You're there to get fed, to get served, to get blessed, but what about you being kindly affectionate to others? People who disfellowship entirely, 
I mean, at least church hoppers are going to church. <laughs> at least you got that going on. I'm happy. At least you're attending. That's good. That's a good thing. But there are those who just disfellowship entirely and they cut off the rest of the body of Christ with great bitterness. And they have this tiny little circle like us four and no more. You know, it's like this tiny little group of other believers who sort of fit their really high requirements for how people can act around them. And this is just not the kind of life that we're called to live as Christians. We're called to be part of a big family. But it's ultimately not enough to just show up at church. Um, nor, nor does it really work to try to have this kind of kindly affection and love. I mean, we have a church with you know, a few hundred people in it. So like, how, do you, how do you have kind of affection and brotherly love with all of these people? I can't remember all their names, let alone interact with them all on this level. So I think perhaps draw the circle a little smaller and just say, but which of these believers are you interacting with? You know, which, which ones are in your circle? Because you'll find that like Jesus, you know, he had like the multitudes, then he had the 70 whom he had more one-on-one -on -one contact with, then he had the 12 whom he, who followed him all over the place. Then he had the three, you know, who Peter, James, John, or, or Peter, John, and, uh, uh, James John. huh? Peter, James, James, John. Thanks. Thanks. That's me being sick. My brain's like <laughs> falling out my ears. But uh, Peter, James, and John. And then he had these, those three who had a much even more intimate. They even went even further. So you have different circles of sort of closeness in your life. That's fine. But treat them with that brotherly affection and love. Obviously, you can't have everybody that tight with you. That's fine. Nobody expects that. So let's, let's look at number five. Character trait number five. It's in honor giving preference to one another. Uh, this is this is actually really opposite of the world. Um, the world seeks to elevate yourself above others. That's kind of the agenda of the world. Get elevated. Elevate yourself. Kind of lift yourself up above others. But the biblical Christian calling is to seek to elevate others above yourself in honor. In honor. Respect. Above yourself. That's really interesting to me. This actually follows Jesus because he made himself low, like of no respect, that he might raise us up and give us glory. I mean, talk about the extreme example. And so he calls me to do the same thing. In fact, some translations put it this way. Outdo one another in showing honor. And here we have in the New King James, in honor giving preference to one another. That's what that means. It, your pref the honor is preferred to them instead of to me. That's my in honor giving preference to one another. Um, other translations, like I said, say outdo one another in showing honor, like the ESV. This really rubs us wrong, doesn't it? I'll show you honor, but I don't want to show you more honor than you're showing me. Because then I, my head starts doing this. My hand starts coming out. I start snapping randomly in the air for I don't really know why. <laughs> Some people, that just, that's just happens to them. Not me, of course. We have like this 50-50 rule, right? Like I, I do for you if you do for me. Like, I treat my friends well, but my enemies better watch out. you are be like, well, that's completely unbiblical. Like, what if God did that? <laughs> we all be in a lot of trouble. <clears throat> we want to offer people honor, but the minute they disrespect us, we write them off our list and we don't respect them anymore. But the calling of Scripture is to respect them anyway. It's to give them honor anyways. To, out, to actually, our goal is, I want to show you more honor than you're showing me. I'm going to outdo you in showing honor. That's the character calling of a believer. And Jesus is my example because he certainly did that for me. So that's, that's pretty powerful. That's pretty powerful. It, it really butts very strongly against that thing I learned when I was a little kid where 
you know, if, if you hurt me, I hurt you. If you disrespect me, I disrespect you. If you do this to me, I do this to you. This is so different than that. So specifically, it's this idea of giving honor, respect, value, or status. That's what I'm specifically being asked to do. And I feel we really need this reminder. Um, when I look around and see other believers, especially the ones I get to know personally, right? You might show up at a church and at first you're like, man, these people are so godly. These people are amazing. They're so beautiful. They're such beautiful people and they love the Lord. Oh, they're so great. And then, you know, one day someone like tells a joke you don't like or they say something that you think is dumb or they act unspiritual in some way and you're like, you know, and, and your whole perception of them shifts and changes. And we tend to like lift them up here and then put them down here so that what ends up happening is the only people we really respect are the people we don't know very well. Right? The only people I really respect, I don't know very well. And guess what would happen if I did get to know you well? I would no longer respect you. This is my fear as, as people get to know me. I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> I don't think I hid my flaws, but you still didn't know about them all. So now you do. Um, I think we need to, to do this. Is, can you still show godly, loving respect, outdo respect to the people you are the closest to, to the people you know the most? Not the least. Easy to do it to strangers because you fill in the gaps with your, with your fanciful imaginations about how wonderful they are, right? But to the people you know the best, can you show them respect? Outdo them in respect. Or do you see them as a problem? Do you look at them and see a series of criticisms? I call out their name, Jeff. And you're like, oh, Jeff, oh, you know, all the problems of that guy. Do you, do you just, if I go through the list of people you know the best, is it just a series of criticisms? Is that all you have attached to their faces? Outdo them in showing respect. Is it a list of disqualifiers, reasons why you don't need to listen to their opinion, reasons why you don't need to respect them? Or do you see them as believers? This is really, in particular, it's about believers. Do you see them as a vessel of the Holy Spirit who will spend eternity glorified, ruling and reigning with Christ? Do I see them as the called of God? Outdo them in respect. It breaks my heart to see in married couples how they've stopped respecting each other sometimes to where the only time that the husband can get a laugh out of his joke is when he tells it to a stranger, right? And his wife rolls her eyes. <laughs> um, or, the, or, or the only time that the, the wife gets complimented about, oh, that was, in, you was intelligent or how helpful or how wonderful, look at a great job you did, is when it's like a visitor in the home and not the husband. But it breaks my heart even more if I see it happen in my marriage. No one should appreciate the people I love more than me. No one should see their giftings and the wonderful things that they do more than I do. Really, I want to outdo in showing honor. So this is a very deliberate attitude. Um, even if we do have valid criticisms, which we probably do, I should still seek to show honor because Christ showed me such an incredible honor. Um, yet it's important in marriage, but Jesus, he draws that circle a lot bigger. So the bigger we can draw that circle, the more we're following Jesus in that. Um, yeah. Okay, so... Six, seven, and eight. I want to take all three of these together. All right, six, seven, and eight. Who do we appreciate? Okay. <laughs> Verse 11, it says, not lagging in diligence. That's number six. Fervent in spirit. That's number seven. Serving the Lord. That's number eight. Three pieces of advice specifically for ministry. So I have to ask, are you in ministry? Are you in ministry? If you're not in ministry, this really isn't for you. But you are in ministry. Your life is ministry. 
Every breath you breathe, everything you do in life is ultimately for Christ. In fact, scripture says that you are a kingdom of priests. You know what the priest was to the Jewish person? Full-time ministry. That's what this guy did. That's his calling in life is to serve the Lord. You're a kingdom of priests. So understand this. As Christians, we are already in ministry. And understanding uh, these issues first requires that you adopt a biblical mindset of seeing all of your life responsibilities as ministry unto the Lord. All of your life responsibilities, relationships, occupation, um, school, um, friendships, whether marriage, just you, you name it. Anything that's sort of in your stewardship. Colossians 3.17, a great memory verse for us. It says, and whatever you do, whatever you do in word or deed, whether it's just spoken or something you act, you act out, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything's ministry. Everything's ministry. So these three pieces of advice are for everything. <laughs> They're for ministry, which is everything. So the first one is this, not lagging in diligence. That word lagging, lagging. Um, now, gamers know this. Uh, people who deal with streams and things like that, they understand what lag is. When the stream lags, it's because it cuts out. <laughs> and then the, and the wheel spins, you know, and that's lagging. Um, but it also means lazy or lacking in ambition. Now, we're not to have selfish ambitions. The scripture is very much against selfish ambitions, but it is not against ambition. Godly ambitions are considered a very good thing. In fact, I'm not to lack in ambition for the Lord. So not lagging, specifically it says in diligence. The ESV has the word zeal here, and it, and it can be a bit of a difficult word to translate. It has the idea of eagerness or doing your best. So not lagging in doing your best. In what? In all that you do, as unto the Lord. Not lagging in that. Diligence is not the start of the race, right? Everybody starts their race well. Most people start the race well. <laughs> the gun goes off and the runner takes off running. And usually they end the race fairly well. Because at the end you get that last final push you've been ready for. But diligence, what this is talking about, diligence is that long, boring part after the start and before the finish. That's diligence. That's diligence. Christianity is a marathon. It's a marathon. And serving the Lord in, in, your, in your relationship with maybe a parent or a spouse or a sibling or a friend or, or a ministry you're serving in in church or just whatever, even, even extracurricular, just fun activities you do, but you do them as unto the Lord. All these things that you do there's a diligence that's required, and I think the way this plays out, in my own experience, it seems to be, it plays out where I start out by doing it with the zeal of the Lord, doing it for the Lord, and then sometimes, as I get in the, in the routine and the habit of it, I start sort of reducing my output energy. Instead of after years of serving the Lord in this area, instead of being even better at it, I'm worse at it. Because I've just gotten bad habits, I've gotten lazy, I've stopped setting the bar really high. I've gotten accustomed to lowering my standards. We've all eaten at restaurants like this. <laughs> you know, I, I have a policy. When, an, when a restaurant opens up that's brand new, I always want to visit it when it's brand new. You know what restaurants are like when they're brand new? They give you free food. That's what they're like. They give you extra portions. They make sure that everything's fine. The meal comes out. Three minutes later, the owner comes out to ask you how your meal is. Is everything okay? Can I get, here, free appetizer for you guys. Tell your friends to come on over. Four or five years later, it's not the same anymore, right? 
now all of a sudden it's like this doesn't look like the picture you know <laughs> it's like things have changed man and and if and if that does happen if the quality of the restaurant goes down probably a couple more years go down the road it's another new restaurant in that building and that's when i come back <laughs> do you do your ministry your marriage, your friendships, your, your, your own reading of the word, your prayer time, do you do these things like with the zeal of the newer believer when it was first starting, when it was like, I'm doing it all out, I'm going for it? Or are you, guy, are you the guy that's like halfway through the marathon, you can't see the end, you can't see the beginning anymore, and you're just tired? So here's a test I put myself through recently <laughs> and, uh, in a very real way. And it was like, if somebody else comes into your, your life and replaces you, would they do it better than you? Not skill-wise. I'm not talking about skill. Would they do it better than you in zeal, in commitment, and in perseverance? Would they have more diligence than you? Would they shame you? What if somehow somebody else teleported right into my marriage, into my shoes, and I just was pulled out? Would he hit the ground running? And he would love the Lord and he would honor God in the way he does these things. And he'd be diligent and he'd try to be a spiritual leader and a servant to his wife and all those things. Would he, would he go for it? And would I look and be like, wow, I wasn't doing any of that stuff. What was I, what was I doing? So this to me is a real eye-opener. This idea not lagging in diligence is a big eye-opener. Would someone else shame me or am I serving my best? Am I doing just good enough or am I really going for it for the Lord? A good reminder for us. A good reminder Take a fresh look at yourself. Take a fresh look at your life and say, Lord, am I lagging in diligence? The next one is fervent, fervent in spirit. Some see that uh, lagging in diligence is one side of the coin. Fervent in, the, in spirit is the other. So you're not lagging in diligence, but you are fervent in spirit, in which case they're kind of like the same thing. But personally, in my experience, usually um, when these lists come up in scripture, there's not a lot of repetition. It's usually a different point being made, even if it's similar. So what is fervent in spirit? Well, that phrase is used one other time in the Bible, and it's in Acts 18.25. And it's with Apollos. Apollos was preaching, and it says that he was fervent in spirit, and he resisted the unbelievers of the time, of his area, and he preached that Jesus was the Messiah. And so he's like, he's like fervent in spirit. He's zealous, he's excited about the Lord, yet he's connected with the Holy Spirit, like his spiritual zeal is, is intact, not just excitement. Um, diligence seems to be about actions to me. Fervent in spirit seems to be about a spiritual overflow in my life. And it's, it, it almost seems a bit strange to be asked, be more fervent in your spirit. Because you're like, well, how do I do that? And I'm not, I'm, I'll be honest, I'm not entirely sure how to, how to train anyone to do this, or myself for that matter. I just know that there has something to do with the mindset of walking in the spirit versus the flesh. That word fervent, it actually comes from the word mean boiling. Like not in a, in a, in a negative sense, but boiling, like, like this, this, this excitement and explosive kind of thing going on. And the question is, is this spirit mine or is it the Holy Spirit? It seems like, the, the, at least the translations I consulted, they thought it was probably your spirit. Either way, though, you're like, my spirit is going to be receiving its empowerment from the Holy Spirit. So either way, this connects to my spiritual walk. My spiritual walk. So what is this like? Well, my opinion is this. Um, that what, what Jesus wrote to the church in Ephesus may relate to this idea of being fervent in spirit. So let me read to you the letter uh, in Revelation that he wrote to the church in Ephesus and see if you think this connects to the idea of being fervent in spirit. 
It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Perhaps this fervent in spirit is that thing which the new believer understands very well. Right? I mean, I'm just in love with the Lord and my spirit is thriving in him. I'm abiding in Jesus and bearing much fruit. And then we're being called to do the same thing. I think, and, and I could be wrong here, this is my understanding of the text, and maybe I'm wrong, but I'll give you my best, my best shot at it. My best shot at it is this. I think new believers see it, and old believers see it, and the middle-aged believers sometimes don't. And what do I mean by middle-aged? I mean, that, that's me, right? I'm not a new believer anymore. I'm not that, like, ancient in the faith guy either. And I feel like, like they've got the corner on the market when it comes to fervent in spirit, you know? I see it all the time in those who've been following Jesus for so long and their spirit is just like, blah, 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 you know, that, that boiling's going on. And the new believer, I see it too. But sometimes for those of us in the middle, we just get so many things going on and distractions. So remember that it really comes down to your relationship with Jesus Christ and staying alive and just this, this, this revival of your spirit. Be in that place. Be in that place. And then finally, the third one, and it'll be the last one we cover tonight, serving the Lord. Serving the Lord. So not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. I see these three pieces of advice. The final one makes me the servant. It makes me the servant. There's a beautiful Christian song, and it's very Christian, right? Like if it wasn't in the environment of Christianity, it'd be like, who would sing this song? And it says, make me a servant, humble and meek. Lord, let me lift up those who are weak. And may the prayer of my heart always be, make me a servant. Make me a servant. Make me a servant. Was it today? Today. That's a good prayer. And it's very Christian. I mean, could you see how the world might walk into a room of Christians singing, make me a servant? And they're like, ew, what? Make you a servant? Like, what's wrong with you guys? But we see service to the Lord as such an honorable and beautiful thing. Like, I get to serve the Lord. And that's the reminder. I'm a servant. I'm a servant. It's easier to remember this when you're doing what the world considers as menial tasks. But for some of us, when we step into ministry and leadership roles, we sometimes forget we're servants. And so it's good to remember, you're here to serve. You're here to serve. But I'm not just serving. I'm serving who? The Lord. I am serving the Lord. This means... That all the stuff I'm talking about, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, it's all connected to my relationship with God. It's relational. It's not just performance. It's relationship. Tonight, I'm teaching a Bible study to, to you guys, but I'm teaching it unto the Lord. This is part of my walk with God. Like, as I get to step into ministry and serve, I'm serving the Lord. Like, what an honor, what a privilege I get to do this. I do it all unto him. 
Now, if I see this, if I see that my, my diligence and my fervency and my abhorring of evil and my clinging to what is good and my being kind to others and outdoing them in honor, if I see all these things as service unto the Lord, now it's all worship. It's all an act of worship unto him. Even the hatred of evil is an act of worship unto God. It's relational now. Well, we're gonna um, we're gonna continue going through these. Um, there's several more. I, I counted by like I said by my count there was 27. We'll go through the rest of them next week. We'll finish them off uh, nine through 27. But what I want to challenge you guys to do is this: take all of those character traits, at least the ones we did tonight, and before you go to bed tonight, like just open the Word of God, open Romans 12 again, and read on through those verses, and just kind of refresh your heart in it, and just be like, Lord, just help me to see the things that you're showing me here to be able to grow and be on that potter's wheel, getting shaped, getting changed. Because I found as I was preparing the study that it was definitely affecting my life. And it was changing things. Because, I'm, I mean, I haven't reached sinless perfection yet. I'm, I'm just, I'm this close. I'm this close. Um, but but I'm, I'm really finding that it's refreshing and changing. And there's something so beautiful about that, you know? If the last time you changed as a believer was like, you know, a year ago, then something's wrong, you know, <laughs> something's wrong because I should always be, always be getting shaped and always be getting changed, renewed in my mind. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you that it targets us. It targets us, but it's like the most gentle surgery and its benefits are so incredible, Lord. So we pray for this. We ask God, by your spirit, open our eyes to see the things in your word that are applying and should apply into us, into our lives, our attitudes, our spirit, all of these things, God. We, we want to be growing in Christ-likeness, really. We want to put on true Christian character. And even if we're a minority in the church, let us not do so with arrogance or pride, but let us do so to be an example that we might serve others by just being an example. We pray, Lord, for the sanctification of, of ourselves and of the body of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would, you would do a work in us and you have our full permission, full permission to lead and guide and transform and change us, Lord. Not that you need that, Lord, but we definitely want to give it. And we ask for your will to be done. We ask, Lord, that you'd make us servants, make us humble and meek, to lift up others, to encourage others, to not see the world through the eyes of the world, but to see all things through the eyes of the Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.